Coming up in this episode, we've got Sean Crisden, who joins us to talk about how he got his start as a narrator in the gay romance genre. Welcome to episode 274 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. I'm Jeff Adams, and with me as always is my co-host and husband, Will Knaus. Hello and welcome back, Rainbow Romance readers. We are so glad you could join us for another episode of the show. Before we jump into this week's interview, just a quick reminder, if you are a member of our Patreon community, keep an eye out because we've got a bonus episode headed your way. We're going to be talking about movies and some of the books that are currently topping the gay romance fiction charts, so you're not going to want to miss that. Also, one more quick reminder... This month's Big Gay Fiction Book Club selection is All Through the Night by Suzanne Brockman. You've still got time to read this classic gay romance before the book club episode arrives in your podcast feeds on Thursday, December 24th. A little Christmas Eve treat from us to you. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to listen to Suzanne's interview in episode 272. Yeah, that'll be the perfect companion as you get ready to read that book. And it's been so great on social media as well, seeing some people who have responded to our announcement of this book club episode and saying that all through the night was like their gateway to MM Romance as it is today. So looking forward to talking about that book really soon. I had the best time talking to Sean Crisden for this week's interview. I have adored many of his audiobooks, and it was a real treat to get to talk to him about how he got into being a narrator, which really tracks back to when he was a child. It's a really great story. We talk about some of his favorite characters and how he stays creative in many different pursuits. It's a really fascinating interview, and we hope you enjoy it. Sean, welcome to the podcast. It is so terrific to have you here. Thank you. It is terrific to be had. <laughs> I knew when we asked you to come to do holiday story time with us, which will actually be going out in the podcast feed next week, that we needed to have you for an interview because we love having narrators on and you're somebody whose origin story we have not gotten yet. Ooh, it's like I'm, I'm a secret superhero. Should, should, should I involve radioactive spiders, perhaps some kind of toxic goop? That's up to you. I don't necessarily you know, want you having a toxic you know, issue <laughs> with the spiders or something. But you know, <laughs> if one floats around your house somewhere, maybe. I don't know. Well, I do live in the Sonoran Desert, and I have seen many strange things. But in some ways, it sounds like you might have gotten bit by the spider early. Because, I mean, your bio says even as a child, you were like Radio Man because of how your voice was as a child. How young are we talking at that point. Oh, I was a wee lad. That was probably, I think, the sixth or seventh grade. Okay. And so, so okay, here's the Sean Crisden. Here's the inside scoop. So I come from a pretty diverse ethnic background. Grew up in the inner city in Philadelphia. And being a kid who basically was a nerd back when nerds were not the cool thing. Like, now it's <laughs> nerd stuff's cool. Now, I was the nerd that bled for all the, the nerds now. You know, you... If you did any, if you were reading books or watching Cosmos, oh, good golly. And I liked language. So that was an early element of who I was. But I also liked speech and dialect and accents and the, the English language in particular because it's ridiculous. And I like to speak proper English. Now, anyone who has grown up in the inner city in Philadelphia knows that proper English, grammatically correct English, isn't exactly what's widely spoken. It's very colloquial, especially with all the various Philly neighborhoods and, and areas. So I was constantly teased for the way that I spoke. And 
coming from such a diverse background, I wasn't white enough for the white kids, wasn't black enough for the black kids. So I was in this, they're just stuck in the middle with me. So very introverted weirdo kid. But my voice, I discovered, was this outlet. It was an instrument for me. And I was the kid who the teacher would say, well, who would like to read this chapter from the book? Ooh, 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 ooh. I loved reading the books. So I would get up and read and I'd say, oh, you sound like you could have a career in radio. You just, what a great voice. It's so rich and sonorous. So that was, I guess, the early start of that. That's, I guess that's how it started. So that was kind of an identity for me. Did that like follow into you wanting to do something with your voice as like looking into your, like your career, even at that age? No. <laughs> it, it actually absolutely did not. My entire intention was I wanted to be a creative. I, I had this creative juice. I call it the creative well that, from which I draw from. And I went to school for art education. I thought I was going to be an art teacher and I, I did illustration and I was, I thought that was going to be the thing to do. Little did I know, but it, it's, it was the kind of thing where I didn't want to at all. I, I'm a musician and I, I do all these other creative things and I apparently sing. Your bio says that, so I must take it to be true that you do. <laughs> <laughs> lies. You, you subscribe to the lies, sir. But it's. So all of those things were, they sort of coalesce in me as just, I'm looking for a creative outlet. I, I did corporate middle management of sorts for almost 10 years and my soul slowly withered. And I, I had to seek a way to basically revitalize and reinvent myself so that I wouldn't perish. <laughs> I, it was something that I needed to do. So the path of least resistance after I'd played in a band for almost 10 years, when the band dissolved, I said, I have all this recording equipment, and I, what am I going to do? And I had done a few um, commercials and some on-camera acting. And for me, because I'm lazy in the sense that I don't like to expend additional energy to do things, so I always look for the path of least resistance, I said, well, when I was on set doing, uh, I think I was on The Last Airbender, was the movie, and I was on set for 30 days, and most of that time was spent eating delicious food and talking to all the other talent. And I'm not a big ego guy. And I know, well, I've done this and I, blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm an introvert. And it's, you know, I certainly picked the wrong career, right? <laughs> and I ended up talking to people who said, well, you have such a great voice and you should do voice acting. And I had done one voice acting gig when I was in the band and realized I was probably in the wrong career. And that sort of stuck with me. So then I dipped my little toe in the water and discovered I loved it, which is funny, too, because the first gig I did as a voice talent and I was trying to learn everything I can. I, I have the type of personality and my brain is wired where if I get an interest in something, then it's no holds barred. I have to learn everything about it. And I was trying to get as much coaching and learning and talking to as many peers and, and mentors as I could find. And my very first job was an audiobook narration for... I want to say it was Change of Heart by Mary Calme, which was a male-male shifter romance. And I, I had no idea about the whole shifter genre. So this was, the whole thing was like, wow, that's a thing? Really? <laughs> and so that's what – that was my first actual voice gig. That was the very first one. And, well, look at me now. Oh, I tell you. <laughs> and uh, it kind of grew from there. So that was sort of the, 
the impetus of everything and, and the catalyst that thrust me forward. And it's funny, that was my first gig. And here I am 10 plus years later. <laughs> Who would have known? Right. Because, I mean, you're, that was like 2006 for your first gig. Yeah. Yeah. The and... very first gig was 2006. I think that first book was 2009. I want to say, which that was my, because in 2006, I had done a narration when I was still in the band. So I didn't even consider myself a voice talent. I just sort of, let's see what this is about. And thought it was amazing. And then, then it took me a while to really get my head out of my ass to decide I should really try to pursue this. And it was November 2009, I believe. And back then, I mean, that's even before ACX Audible. So it, it was not the easiest thing to even get into then. How did you wander into audiobooks? I mean, regardless of genre, how did you end up talking audiobooks? Well, it was a – I when I give a lot of interviews and people ask me, how did you do what you do? I, I talk about my sporth method and it's this whole thing. And maybe – maybe we'll talk about it. But it's – basically I played my network. I used my skills. For some reason, people seem to think I'm charismatic and charming, so <laughs> I showed them. And I was able to basically pound the pavement and make the phone calls and, and knock on some doors and to get the first gig. Basically, you, you know, it's like you oversell. And, and then it's hoping that you have the capacity to catch up to these lofty <laughs> expectations you've set of yourself. And fortunately, I, I did in that case. That's a risk. You know, it's a game of risk and reward. And that's how it started. And for some reason, people liked my narration. I couldn't believe it. And and I always, that first book, I, I, I have since apologized to Mary Calmet because I really didn't know what I was doing. And it's obvious. And I've listened to it. And no one else should ever listen to that book if you own it. If you don't own it, you can buy it because you should support the genre and Mary. But if you do own it, you probably shouldn't listen to it again. Just read it <laughs> because it's not my most glowing performance. I mean, in the, in the early days, you're trying to find your way and we learn by doing. And it's it's sort of comedy for me now. So that may in and of itself make people want to, <laughs> want to listen to it. I, I don't know. But yeah. But some of your earliest audiobooks, too, that are listed on Audible anyway, are classics. You've got Henry David Thoreau back there. You've got Harriet Beecher Stowe, F. Scott Fitzgerald. That's very different well, than M.M. Romance. How did you connect to those? <laughs> well, I, well, I hit a ton of different genres, too. M.M. Romance was sort of my bread and butter, right? And, you know, I've done hetero romance. I've done menage. I've done just straight out erotica I've done a lot of nonfiction, a lot of other fiction, fantasy, I, because I love literature. And it, I don't try to put a parameter on what that should be, if it's well done. And of course, you know, the ability to, to narrate Thoreau or to narrate Harriet Beecher Stowe. I did Uncle Tom's Cabin. I mean, these are classic books, right? And, and I was, again, a nerd. So the idea of transcendentalism and the entire movement and the naturalist movement, that, that fascinated me. Well, so I, I didn't narrate Walden, but a big fan of that. And I did, in the early days, I did F. Scott Fitzgerald, which I think it was the beautiful and the damned. But I mean, the 20s jazz era scene and the jazz, I mean, that, that was such a crazy time. I, I've done a number of books from that era, which are fantastic. I also narrated the Book of Mormon. I mean, it's, and I'm, I'm non-religious myself, but these texts and their cultural significance and impact are always 
you know, I, I'm glad to be a part of that. So I, if I can lend my voice to things that are relevant and be they controversial, be they funny, be they historical fact, then I, I'm, I'm all for that because it's about the idea of the sort of the propagation of literature and, and spreading that forward. So, yeah, I guess I was kind of fortunate. And, I, and now that I, I have a bit of a reputation and I can choose uh, more readily or decline what I choose to narrate, it's still a lot of MM romance. <laughs> That's, you know, I, it's, you, you'll do what you like, right? And I, I do a lot of a lot of other genre fiction, and sometimes a story will come along that just really resonates with me. I mean, I I've done a lot of the the slave epics, the, the just sort of the the tales of bondage, and just period pieces, historical fiction, just rooted. So I, all of that stuff fascinates me. Mm-hmm. So it, I guess it all speaks to different elements of who I am. Now that you're in the spot where you get to pick, what is it about MM Romance that keeps it at the top of the list of the things that you want to do? The safety of it. You know, and and I say that because, you know, we talk about genre fiction and there are specific elements that apply to specific genres of fiction. And that's the particular beats we expect, you know, the cute meat and especially the happy ending, right? The happily ever after. So there's an element of safety in that familiarity and that, oh, no, you know, the, he was disowned by his family and he could never love again. How will they ever come together? And oh, now his ex is back and he's a murderer, you know, and so it's how can all of these things work out in the end? But somehow we know that there's going to be a happily ever after. And and getting to that is uh, the thing that kind of keeps you involved. It keeps you invested because that's part of what makes the genre by and large. I mean, there are some titles and some authors who issue that and throw you for a loop with either a cliffhanger or just a, a downright bummer of an ending. But <laughs> <laughs> but we you don't read it for that. You know, we're not reading it for the, the reality of it in many cases, which is a strange dichotomy because, you know, as we, we were talking earlier, the, the books that I love the most are the ones that feel the most real. And largely that's in the human experience and the characters. They feel real and, and relatable. And they're such a joy to bring to life that way. But it better work out in the end, right? So we, <laughs> there's enough we, – we deal with enough tragedy and drama and trauma in our actual lives that it's nice to know that – here it is juxtaposed in this other world. And it's almost I consider it fantasy romance. Mm-hmm. Not in the fact that the, the romance itself is a fantasy, but that we know that at the end, the sun will rise, they'll hold hands, get married, everything will be great, the ex will be carted off to jail. Yes, he can love again. Oh, here's a new family for you of people who love and understand you and accept you for who you are. So all of these wonderful themes are fantastic. And we know we're going to get them. So that's the reward of it. That's what makes the genre really what it is. Mm-hmm. So I think that's it. But I mean, I mean, why do you prefer? Like, why do you, why do you enjoy it? I Let's do like. The microphone around. Yeah, <laughs> me. Hmm. I do like the happy. You know, I really like knowing that there's a happy on the other side, and I'm willing to read. I'm willing to read the sweetest. Second chance romance and just totally be along for a nice fluffy ride. But I'm also willing, in many cases, 
maybe not so much in 2020, but in many cases also be put through hell and back to get to the other side. And I really love it when an author will leave me with, oh, that happened. Are they going to pull this off? I don't know. They have to pull it off, right? It has to be a happy. And those are the books that make me the happiest as a reader because it's like this really, you know, kind of went above and beyond into something else because I had to worry, like, are they going to be fine? They have to be fine, right? <laughs> you know, so, and, right. Even within the confines of what we expect where we think, wait a minute, is this possible and th- and that's also when you you have an author who can really weave a tale that just does more than just hits the beats it's it's literature right it's moving and it evokes emotion and feeling from you that kind of runs the spectrum and that's a fantastic experience as well yeah, and, and finding those within the genre is ah it's like it's it's euphoric isn't it <laughs> when you, you you add all of these things and you you suddenly have this fantastic story with all of these twists and turns and unique nuanced characters that feel real. And that's that's part of the, I think, the jackpot of when you can land on an author or a series or even a single title, a single mm-hmm. book that can do that for you. Mm-hmm. And it really resonates with you that way. And you really got one of those series recently with Adriana Herrera's Dreamers. Mm. So rich. People who listen to this show are probably tired of us talking about it. But it's such a rich and beautiful series. Tell us a little bit about your work in it because that puts you through some vocal exercises because that is not a small oh, yeah. cast. <laughs> well, it, it's close. It's near and dear to my heart because I, I, I grew up in Philly. I spent a lot of time in New York in the city. And I have a lot of friends from the area. So it was sort of a calling card back home for me in that I can revisit all of these things again, in particular the food. <laughs> I, I, the, the, Were I mean, you, you know, starving while you recorded that? Because uh, my God, <laughs> it just oh, just Nesto's truck and just the oh boy, and then everything, and even even talking uh, in the last book, American Christmas, said oh, well, Yin's sister would make lafetok and all, oh, and the Thai food and just oh, oh, oh. I live in the desert, right? So I, I'm in the Southwest, killer Mexican food, right? <laughs> Killer, and there's a lot of good stuff. Actually, there's surprisingly, you know, when I moved here from LA, uh, I found a really good sushi place in the desert. Very dangerous, very risky. Don't know if I should advise it, but I actually found a sushi place that is darn good for being in the Sonoran Desert. But yeah, so going back to the, just the personalities, the people, and not just the the accents, but the I knew all of those people. You know, I had my I have friends who who are those people still to this day, and digging into that and adriana is masterful at making real people this is real people so it's not just i'm going to take this cardboard character and this this trope and jam that and it feels real and all of the relationships flow and flourish and her concepts of your family's who you make it this found family which is is something that really resonates with me in my life too is it's unmatched you know she's really at the top of her game with those books and they deserve all the praise they've received and and will receive and it really that's one of my favorite series that I've done for sure for sure I mean just that it's just so much fun and and that our the last book was such a fitting finale for it that it just I I'm remiss to say it's perfect but it's damn good (laughs) 
<laughs> so, you know, perfection is this elusive thing. But yeah, that's that's one that if you haven't read or listened to that, for sure, for sure. And not just because I did it, you know, read the book because she did the work and they are fantastic stories. What's your prep for something like that? And did you know when you started that it was going to be the series that it was and you could kind of prep knowing that you were going to visit Patrice over and over and over again and visit Juan Pablo over and over and over again to kind of, you know, set the stage for yourself? It's a great question because for these books in particular, I quickly learned that my prep involved eating. Right. I had to eat a lot so that by the time I got to the book, I could. So, you know, I had to edit out a lot of stomach rumbles and grumbles and salivation. Well, my process is I, I have a prepper who prepares my books. So I, I typically do four to six books a month. So in order to be more efficient, I, I hire a prepper who will read the book and essentially create a Cliff's Notes version of the book for me. When I know a book is good, the sort of the benchmark is that I go through and read the whole book in its entirety because I want to as opposed to just accessing the notes, which is character breakdown, summaries, chapter by chapter, et cetera. That's a secret. Don't tell anyone that Sean Christen does that. Oh, boy. So you mean when he reads the book, it's like a cold read every time? Yeah. So but so that's part of the prep. But it's also when you have a book that has such rich characters, it's really digging into understanding the characters as best I can and how as best I can interpret them from the narrative as the author has portrayed them. So I keep really detailed notes as well and audio files of the characters just so I can understand how I handled them to strive for a level of consistency within the characters. But like her books were easy because I knew those people. <laughs> uh, they were they were all friends of mine, uh, almost quite literally. So that's easy. The The difficult things are when possibly when maybe you have a fantasy book and there's elements of, you know, here's Zipthorpe Kaflorklack and you're trying to keep track of those things. But prep for her books was pretty easy. And and most of our characters are, are really consistent throughout the books. And as everyone's introduced, we get clear descriptions of who they are and what they're about in the narrative. So that makes my job as the narrator easier. It takes a little bit of the fun out of it in the sense that when you're hired as a narrator, you're hired for your skill in interpreting the text and what you bring to the performance to present it to a listener. So it's much like if you hire a particular actor to act in your film, you, you go in with an expectation of what they do. You know, you kind of, oh, okay, we know what they do. We saw the audition or we saw their 17 other films or, or what have you. And you hire them because not just of their box office draw, maybe, but what the skill that they'll bring to the film. So one of the fun things as a narrator is donning the mantle of storyteller and being able to weave the story through your lens and your perspective and then present it again so it's fresh and new. I have a lot of authors say, I never would have imagined that this story would have sounded like this because they intimately know it in a way that none of us can. But then to suddenly see it in this strange sort of disfigured version that comes out of a narrator's mouth – and then if they enjoy that as well, that's something. So, mm -hmm. that's, so uh, I, I guess to answer the question is my prep draws from life experience and my unique perspective on things. Sometimes I poke, I'll poke an author and say, hey, help me understand this. You know, if I really can't wrap my head around it. But by and large, it's that's what it is. It's basically you getting to listen to me experience that story. 
Mm-hmm. So it's kind of an interesting way to, to put it. You'd basically pull up a theater seat in my head and there you go. Do you have particular types of stories or characters that are kind of your favorites to dig into? Hmm. Well, I love I love the quirky ones where because I I identify with those. So if we have a character who is sort of an outcast, but not because, you know, they they don't sell drugs to penguins or something, you know, they they're 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 just strange Uh, eccentric is what i've often uh, heard (laughs) and i I identify with those with those types of characters because they resonate with me and 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 who i am i also like characters uh, who are severely disadvantaged again it resonates with me not that i'm severely disadvantaged in my life but the challenges that we face to gain acceptance to to gain sameness to gain parity in the grander stage. So characters that struggle with those things really hit home for me because of my own personal experiences. So I, I tend to, I guess, root for the underdog in both of those cases, so to speak. Mm-hmm. That, And I like those stories. And I like those stories when we inevitably reach a happy ending, but they haven't lost those unique characteristics that still make them that. Not necessarily the negative ones, because we, we can we want to see those slightly smoothed over, right? We want a happy ending. We want the happy. But those personality traits, those quirks, the the ideas, possibly the the, the passions or or the interpretations of things that make them uniquely individual, those are the things I like. I don't I don't necessarily like sheep. People that just want to be like everyone else. You want to? I wear what they wear. I do what they do. I say what they say. I I enjoy individuality. I enjoy uniqueness. I I enjoy quirkiness. I enjoy eccentricity, because that's me, and that's the spice that makes life. I don't want to predict it. You know, I I, I want to I want it to kind of feel like it's flying off the rails at times, and and you don't know what's going to happen. There's there's something, and as much as there's the comfort of the happy ending. Within that param, within those parameters, we still can get wildly creative with what happens and what our expectations are. So that mm-hmm. I think characters that are just downright weird are the, <laughs> the ones I, I I really like. Now this might be asking you to pick a favorite child, and you've actually already kind of hinted at that the Dreamer series is among your favorite series. Do you have other favorite characters or stories that are sitting in your catalog that listeners should go check out because it's a it's a favorite of yours? Absolutely, yeah. The first one that pops into my mind, like if, if you're talking about a favorite character of, of books that I've narrated, it's got to be Ty, Tyson, from Bear Otter and the Kid, better known as The Kid. So T.J. Klune is another author who can just write the crap out of a story. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a fantastic author. And I had the fantastic pleasure of narrating most of the books in the Bear Otter and the Kids series. And awesome books, first of all. And But I really, really, really liked Tyson because he reminded me of myself, just this strange, out-of-place kid who seemed like an old soul who knew more than he should but didn't know how to apply it exactly and knew a lot a lot had a lot of information on about a lot of things and just you're trying to connect the dots so and as he developed in the series it was just delightful to me 
you know, and, and in fact, my own son, I call the kid and I say, he's just a little guy, you know, <laughs> but for, for, for my own son. And it comes directly from that series. And it, so I think he's definitely one of my favorite characters and, you know, Bear and Otter, fantastic i think i like i love jack and riley from rj scott's texas series they're they're probably my favorite couple i think i think they they definitely take the cake i mean because we we've given so much love to the dreamer series and and those couples are they're fantastic i'm trying to think if if any others uh jump out to me but i think those those three in particular so looking at tyson from bear otter and the kid jack and riley from rj's texas series and really all of the the dreamer i I can't even think of one couple that i because they all kind of go hand in hand in one way or another they really do Uh, yeah you know because it's so well intermeshed and interwoven that it doesn't feel like you're getting some some other couple jammed down your throat that's like oh they're not really a part of this they're not really related it it really works all well as a unit i mean she she outdid herself so yeah I, i think those and there are a lot of other ones that I absolutely love, but those probably pop in as sort of the top three right now. But it, it rotates, you know, because if I get reminded of something or, or a fan will write me and say, I love what you did. I say, yeah, that was great. You're right. You know, so that's what's on my brain right now. Uh, I, I always like to say that's my current opinion. And uh, they all have expiration dates with the option to renew <laughs> depending <laughs> on new information. So that that's where we are. Audible and Amazon and Audiobooks in general are very much in the news right now. We're recording this right before Thanksgiving and so much being talked about around returns and such. As a narrator who can be impacted by that, what are your thoughts on this whole thing? Well, it's, it's challenging because, and even, and I, and not even speaking as a narrator, just speaking as, um, a concerned citizen or as someone who is a reader is a listener is also an author i haven't published any of my work yet but but all looking at it you know i i have so many authors who come to me and say what can we do and and i am far from the authority i'm sort of a a middleman if you will because i work closely with with audible and amazon as a narrator and I've done books specifically for them. I've done books as a producer on the ACX platform that they use to produce the books for, for the marketplace. And as it exists right now, it's terrible. The authors are, are really getting shafted in regard to how they their footing in the marketplace, how they are valued as the authors, because ultimately they are the commodity. They're the goods producer. I would have nothing to narrate if our authors weren't writing these fantastic stories. So they need to be valued. They need to be brought to the table and heard. And I think right now there's some headway being made. So Amazon is addressing the issue. I don't know what that outcome will be. I hope it's favorable because the authors are the one that produce the work. And I, I know very few industries that will allow a product to be consumed essentially in its entirety and then returned and then have that cycle repeated. So there's definitely a flaw in in the commercial logic of how that's working. And then on the opposite end, authors can't find that to be fiscally viable. They're doing the work. How are they going to create audiobooks? 
They can't. They can hardly afford to exist as an author to create these works for us. They're going to need to basically support themselves with additional jobs. And I'm one that can tell you that working the day job <laughs> while trying to create can be challenging. And by and large, right now, I'm siding with the authors, of course, because that's where that there's a lack of parity in what's happening. Amazon does have some rather rigorous contracts that a lot of the authors are, can engage in. You, know, you can opt in exclusivity or not. And as the, as they say, the 800-pound the gorilla in the room, they are formidable. And they have a lot of negotiating power and they can dig in their heels. But I'm hoping that it's a, a concept of the common good and to be able to do the right thing for not just themselves and the authors, but the industry as a whole, and for the entire idea of a creative pursuing a career that is financially sustainable for them to contribute to the arts and culture of the world at large. I mean, that's, that's if we blow it up to the macro lens, that's what it is. So, you know, no longer is, is the, the king paying a retainer for the royal scribe. And, and you know, so, so we're trying to find ways to exist as creatives. And this battle, this obstacle, if you will, I don't want to imply that it's a war, but this, this current obstacle uh, in that is part of the challenge. And it's, it's part of a larger message in terms of creativity as a viable, valued resource in our society and as a way that we can support those who create to contribute to, to the arts within our society. So I'm hoping it has a, a reasonable outcome because it, it is, you know, I'm trying to think of, is there anything that I can do for my position to try to, to help facilitate a, a useful agreement? where both sides are, are valued and can come to the table and reach an agreement. And especially for me, because obviously if authors aren't able to write or, and, or don't want to produce audiobooks, then I won't be narrating. And nobody wants to hear me narrate my own stories. Boy. So uh, hopefully we can find a, a wonderful compromise where everybody won't necessarily get everything they want. That's compromise. But we can all come to the table and eat and enjoy a decent meal. So, you know, I... I'm hesitant to say that it'll be resolved shortly, but there is traction being made. We've sort of made enough noise that now it's been brought to Amazon's attention. So now we'll see how it plays out. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, even by, maybe by the time this airs, there'll be better yeah, news yeah. on the horizon. So we'll definitely Tis see. So you said something in there that made me go, hmm, Sean Kristen, the author. What does Sean Kristen, the author, write? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, I've, I've done a ton of shorts. So I've written a ton of shorts because I'm, I'm uh, testing my pen, so to speak. And I've actually, I finished plotting a novel that's actually intended to be part of a series of a trilogy. And I, it was the big moment for me. I, I successfully, and it makes sense. And I, I think this is good. So at some point I'll begin that <laughs> that elusive first draft, but I, I'm very busy with with my voice work and all of my other creative pursuits. Uh, you know, I want to make music. I'm a visual artist. I, now I want to write. I want to do it all. Oh, how many pairs of pants can I wear? How many different hats? So, it time is the most important resource right now, but it, it will eventually happen because it, it burns a hole in me pretty much every day. 
that it needs to be done. And I look at, you know, the, boy, there's the synopsis sitting there and then I did all, uh, I need to get to this. So at some point, but the, the actual novel is sort of, it's historical fiction. It's romance, of course. And it, it takes place in the Arizona territory in the mid to late 1800s, which I'm in Arizona. I'm kind of fascinated by the wild west. And it, it throws some interesting themes into play in that era. And it's it's quirky, surprise, and kind of humorous and not exactly traditional in terms of the genre. And, and so I'm flirting with that and how it's going to pan out in that first draft and if I like it that way. Or if I say, ah, we'll just you know kind of stick to the stick to the script kids so that's where my biggest challenge is but it's it's one of these days i'll definitely dig in in earnest and and begin the first draft which i've written maybe a page or two and i don't even count that as beginning the first draft because it it just kind of flowed out when i had 15 minutes here or oh yeah this is absolutely the scene that opens the book you know so that's exciting (laughs) it is it is I, i i'm glad to have that muse to contribute in that way you know so it's it's fun and i may just release it for free you know it's a kind of thing because it's it's not my bread and butter and i'm not trying to look at it to (laughs) to go against the powers that be yeah we just talked about that that i may just say you know here's it's basically a love letter to the genre so we'll see we'll see it's exciting to keep an eye out for for sure to see how that evolves yeah. You're creative in so many ways. What do you do to keep that well full so that you can be creative in so many ways? Eat. Okay. <laughs> that works. Well, yeah, well, that's good. Well, I like to eat and breathe and sleep. It's for me to to replenish the well. I, I do. I call it the creative well. It's interesting you would you would term it that way from what which I drink. That the most important thing for me is to experience. So, and this is a strange thing to say as a misanthropic desert hermit who just hides in my crypt and avoids sunlight and human contact. But it's, it's one of the things I love most actually about the Sonoran Desert here in Southern Arizona is it's teeming with life. And just to go out into the desert is so renewing for me. And this is, this is where my soul sings. And Pardon me. Growing up a child in the city, I never knew it. You know, the desert was, isn't that just in sort of old Warner Brothers cartoons and, <laughs> you know, the Roadrunner and, and Wiley Coyote are out there. Uh, occasionally Bugs Bunny will miss that uh, left turn at Albuquerque. So it, it's mainly for me is I try to experience more things. And I'm not a big media consumer. I'm not uh, a big social media person, which if if it wasn't for my career and interacting with fans and other talent, I, I doubt I'd even have much of a social media presence. But it's just experiencing. So that's, do I read new things? Do I listen to new music that, that may be something I love and, and cherish dearly or maybe something I've never heard and critically listen to it? Do I critically view something? I lo- love art and museums. I'm a visual artist, went to school for art. And so I love absorbing the art of other talent because it's a story of the world. For me, art is communication. It's a language. And for me, the only way that there is bad art in any media is if you feel nothing. So if it's just pure apathy, then it has not done its job. It hasn't communicated something to you. I mean, objectively, you could say, yes, well, it made you feel nothing. (laughs) But the absence of something 
is something, but you know, we're, we're looking for a more emotional reaction. If you hate it, great. If you love it, fantastic. But being able to draw those emotions and experiences from art is really important. So experiencing art and creativity and talent and letting my imagination still grow. I'm still a big kid. So being able to play in those types of ways and just be getting back into nature. I'll walk out even into my yard here. I'm fortunate enough to have a couple acres in the desert and it's so peaceful and there's no people. <laughs> and, you know, I'll take my shoes off and just kind of dig my toes into the earth. And it literally and figuratively grounding. And these things heal my soul and, and replenish that well. Because it's so easy to be just crushed under the, the oppressive weight of life, especially in 2020. Good golly. This, <laughs> this has been quite a year. Mm -hmm. So it's nice to be able to kind of set a benchmark again and reattune to the true values and have gratitude for the things that we do have and, and who you are and where you are and the relationships you may have and, and to just be mindful and present now. So those things help me to sort of hit that reset button and fill the well back up a little bit and then find new experiences from which to drink and then kind of regurgitate them out in my mouth if I'm narrating or apparently as I'm <laughs> dancing around writing these stories or the songs I want to do and you know so it's I think that does that answer it or it does. I ramble enough yeah <laughs> I, it was, I liked it a lot now I kind of want to come visit the desert someday <laughs> open invitation <laughs> what can you tell us about releases you've got coming up it's it can be a little tricky well, I know you know with audible releases which is a whole other problem I but I, I, and I never know what's coming out until I, I might happen to see or somebody say, hey, this is out. Because I, I like to try to promote everything. But, and I'm kind of my social media version. But it, it's it's just getting thick. But I know Cupcakes and Christmas by R.J. Scott will be – it might actually may be available right now. It's a Christmas holiday story. Uh, I think she's selling it in her store as part of the entire debacle of everything going on. She's trying that. Uh, cute little novella and uh, – it's very sweet, if you forgive the pun. And I think there's option number three from Samantha Cole, which is a menage title, which is pretty cool. It was, it was pretty good. I've, I've done a couple for her, and, and most of them are the menage books. There's also – I just finished, in fact, was it yesterday or the day prior, Magnum by Jean St. James. And Magnum's – it's a hetero book. But Magnum is a big black biker. So it's got the motorcycle club bad boy thing going on. And that was that one was a lot of fun because it, it actually took him out of his element. So it was it sort of turned the whole motorcycle, you know, he was bad boys doing bad boy stuff and took took him out of his element and kind of spun it on its head. So that was fun too. So I think that one's coming out soon. And there's there's a bunch more, and I'm I can just look at my calendar, but I don't know what the immediate release dates sure. are because what do I know? I just flap my gums, and then they they do it. So yeah, I go through. I do maybe four to five books a month, maybe six some months, and then it's it's kind of a whirlwind for me. But there are a ton coming out right before the holidays, so most folks will typically just Google my name and see what's what's coming up and what's just released. Yeah, well, we'll definitely do that. We'll make sure our show notes have whatever is top of the audible list and top of the other lists to see to see what's new 
This is a loaded final question, <laughs> given what you said about social media. <laughs> How can people keep up with you to see what's coming out? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a very fast runner. So first, a very good pair of running shoes and, and their finest athletic wear. Uh, well, yeah, social media. Yeah, it is kind of loaded because I, I did say previously that I have a social media version. I'm working on it, right? I just, I just started an Instagram. I've had an Instagram account for seven years However long Instagram's been around, never posted a thing on it, never even logged in. That's this guy. So I, I actually posted some stuff on Instagram. So you can find me on Instagram, Sean Crisden. And I, I think I posted just videos of me rambling, so forgive me. And maybe a couple, I posted a couple covers right around the time the pandemic started. I was just sort of inundated with people and grief and the stress of it. A lot of folks tend to, to rely on me to say, hey, you always seem to have a level head and are objective. And what do you think about this? This is crazy. Yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy. So I, I did a series I called Music Therapy where I just did three music covers. and upload. I think they're, they're on my Facebook. And I accept Facebook friends so you can find me on Facebook. It's not a fan page. Really. It's my personal page because I don't post much. But also, you know, you, you like what I do. Come on down. So just send me a friend request or uh, if for some reason you don't hear from me, message me because it, it tempts me to open up Facebook to see that. So Facebook, I'm also on Twitter. That's also Sean Crisden, just my name, which usually I pretty much post the same stuff I post to Facebook and uh, Instagram. But every then and again, there'll be something unique on one or the other. But Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Those sound like all the social media, so you can insta-tweet MySpace book face place space. Did that sound like you know what I was talking about? Mm, MySpace. That's not how any of this works. <laughs> <laughs> we will link up to all that in the show notes so that people can find you and the wonderful audiobooks. Sean, it has been Thanks. an amazing conversation with you. Thank you so much for hanging out for a while. Thank you. You know, I, I could do it all the time. All you got to do is uh, provide the food, and I, I'm, I'm in to win. Did I mention I like eating? <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> Yeah, this has been fabulous. Thanks so much. This episode's transcript is brought to you by our community on Patreon. If you'd like to read the interview for yourself, simply head on over to the show notes page for this episode at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. Don't forget, the show notes page also has links to everything that we've discussed in this episode. And thanks again to Sean for taking the time to give us his backstory, tell us about some of the stuff that he's got coming out soon, and I am really looking forward to seeing what exactly his romance novel turns out like. I really hope he is able to find some time to devote to that alongside bringing us so many great books as well. Just to note, we talked a little bit in that interview about what was going on with Audible and audiobook returns. The situation's improved marginally since we spoke with Sean a few weeks back. It's a, a new return policy now, but I'll, I will say that our point of view on the whole thing is that there needs to be more the fact that you can return an audiobook that perhaps you've listened to all the way through, or maybe you've even listened to it multiple times through. And it could be returned within seven days. And at that point, the author's not getting paid for it and not getting their royalty. That's just wrong. In our point of view, the only proper return method is if you haven't hit a certain part of the book. If you've read the whole thing, it, you bought the book. This is not like Kindle Unlimited where you're checking things out, reading things, and we're getting paid by page views. So something to think about, please be a good citizen and don't return your audiobooks. 
respect the authors who are making this work because what we don't want to see happen is that authors stop making audiobooks because they're not able to recoup their investment on them. I also want to tell you that many of Sean's books that we talked about, plus an extensive portion of his catalog, are available on Libro.fm. Now, you know, we're big fans here of Libro.fm because when you buy an audiobook from them, you're actually also supporting a local bookstore. And that is so critical at this time of year. Libro.fm, as we've talked about on the podcast recently, has some great gift packages available that is giving even more money to the local bookstores when you purchase them. You can see all about the holiday packages that are available at biggayfictionpodcast.com slash audiogift, and those special packages will be available through the end of the year for your gift-giving needs, whether you're giving to a friend or perhaps to yourself. And since last week, we have gifted ourselves with some wonderful audiobooks. Yeah, Cupcakes and Christmas by R.J. Scott. One of Sean's most recent audiobooks is actually sitting in my Libro app right now, and I cannot wait to get to it. I'm super excited. If you want to take advantage of this amazing deal at Libro.fm, just go to biggayfictionpodcast.com slash audiogift. All right, I think that'll do it for now. Coming up next in episode 275, which just so happens will be dropping into your podcast feed on Thursday the 17th. We've got some reviews coming your way. It's going to be another review palooza, including our take on the gay Christmas movies that aired this past weekend. So you're not going to want to miss that. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, please stay strong, be safe, and above all else, keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. As you know, you can find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Our original theme music is composed by Daryl Banner.